Today on Legalese, we are going to be discussing the 1971 Supreme Court case of Clay versus the United States, uh, which is much more commonly known as the trial of Muhammad Ali. Hey, greetings, everybody, and welcome back once again to Legalese. I am your host, Bob. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Uh, if you happen to be new to this channel, let me bid you a special welcome. Uh, this is the podcast where we're going to be discussing all things constitutional law. We will also be discussing other current events in law, politics, and culture as well. Uh, now, this show comes in a few different formats. You can find a video version of it on YouTube, Rumble, and Odyssey. Uh, you can find an audio-only version on Anchor and Spotify. Uh, over on Substack, you can find the show as well as show notes pages for each episode, uh, which just provide you a bunch of uh, links and articles and documents and cool stuff uh, related to the latest episode. Uh, you can also find a bunch of articles and essays uh, that I have written over on Substack, mostly about issues of constitutional law. And you may want to consider uh, checking out my new book, Constitutional Sleight of Hand. Now, this is a book about uh, the Constitution's implied powers doctrine, uh, and we look at what the origin of this was, what its meaning was, uh, how it has evolved over time, why it is so important that people understand this aspect of the Constitution, and some suggestions on how we could begin to roll this back uh, so that this doctrine was much more in line with the meaning and the scope it had uh, at the time that the document was ratified. So today, talking about the trial of Muhammad Ali, uh, this is actually uh, part two. So the first one was released yesterday, or at least yesterday from the date of recording this. And in that one, uh, we talked about uh, what is a conscientious objector, generally speaking? Uh, and then we spend some time talking about uh, the basis of Muhammad Ali's claim of a conscientious objector. Uh, today, what we are going to be doing is uh, really getting into the case and doing like the deep dive legal analysis sort of thing that I usually do here on the show. Uh, and I want to, uh, again, thank uh, Jay, the longtime viewer who recommended this topic, and it was a great, great topic. Uh, so hopefully you guys enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoyed making it. So I guess uh, as far as we're concerned, uh, our story starts around 1960 when Muhammad Ali, uh, who was then still known as Cassius Clay, shook up the world and became a household name when he became an Olympic gold medalist in boxing in the 1960 Games in Rome. And four years later, in 1964, Clay would go on to win the World Heavyweight Boxing title by upsetting Sonny Liston in Miami Beach. Now, at the time, Clay was just 22 years old. And... Two days after this fight, Clay announced that he was indeed a member of the Nation of Islam, which was a group that had been worshipping since 1962. And the following week, Nation of Islam leader Elijah Muhammad would announce 
the clay would be renamed Muhammad Ali. Now, in February of 1966, the Selective Service informed Ali that he was, for the first time, eligible for military service. Ali then applied for a conscientious objector exemption, asserting that he was opposed on religious grounds to fighting in any war. His local draft board rejected the claim and he appealed to the Kentucky State Appeal Board. Now, this matter was then referred up to the Department of Justice for an advisory recommendation as the regulations of the time prescribed. Now, how this worked was the FBI interviewed dozens of persons, including members of Ali's family, many of his friends, his neighbors, as well as business and religious associates. And the DOJ then convened a hearing before a designated hearing officer, uh, in this case with a gentleman named Lawrence Grauman, who was a very uh, well-respected former Kentucky state judge. Now, in that hearing, Judge Grauman concluded that Ali had a sincere religious objection to war in any form, and he recommended that the service grant Ali status as a conscientious objector. Now, however, in a move that seems especially snaky and underhanded even for government, the DOJ did not forward Judge Grauman's report to the appeal board, or even tell Ali what the judge had concluded. Instead, the DOJ wrote their own letter to the appeal board, advising that they should reject Ali's conscientious objector claim. Now, it was made very clear that the DOJ and President Lyndon Johnson were under considerable public pressure to make certain that Ali would either serve in the military or do time in prison. And the DOJ suggested three distinct grounds uh, for the board to rule against Ali. And these were facts that became the basis for the court's ultimate disposition. And the appeal board would promptly deny Ali's claim, but did not offer any reason for his decision. So, in April, uh, on April 28th, in 1967, Ali reported to the Selective Service Induction Center in Houston where he was living at the time, but he refused to submit to induction. Now, Ali's refusal would go on to have two major consequences for him. The first was uh, the loss of his championship, as well as his boxing license, and criminal prosecution. And mere hours after Ali's refusal uh, to be inducted, the chairman of the New York State Athletic Commission, uh, Edwin Dooley, announced that the commission had withdrawn Ali's license to fight on the grounds that licensing a man who refused induction was, quote, detrimental to the best interests of boxing, end quote. The commission also withdrew its recognition of Ali as a world heavyweight champion. And within days, every important state boxing commission in the nation had followed suit, effectively preventing Ali from fighting anywhere in the United States and basically taking away his ability to make a living. 
Now, what would come next would be his prosecution for so-called draft dodging. So, a grand jury was convened and then indicted Ali for draft evasion. And on June 20th of 1967, a jury in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Texas found Ali guilty of after deliberating for just 21 minutes. And at this, federal judge Joe Ingram sentenced Ali to five years in prison and a $10,000 fine, which was the maximum penalty uh, that this crime could get. Now, the judge also required Ali to surrender his passport pending appeal, which now meant that Ali couldn't even go fight overseas either. Naturally, Ali appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Now, they affirmed his conviction. Ali then petitioned the Supreme Court, uh, and he sought a cert petition. The justices reportedly had voted to deny cert, but before the court could issue that decree, Solicitor General Erwin Griswold informed the court that the defendants in a number of pending cases, including Ali's, had been subject of FBI wiretaps that may well have been unconstitutional under the court's then recent Fourth Amendment decisions. So with this, the court remanded the case back to the trial courts to decide whether the convictions were tainted by virtue of unlawful wiretaps. Now, in Ali's case, the district judge subsequently decided that the surveillance, uh, and in particular what we're talking about here, is that Ali was overheard uh, in taps on phones belonging both to Elijah Muhammad and to Martin Luther King Jr., but this judge found that uh, these wiretaps had no bearing on Ali's conviction. In this case, so the uh, Court of Appeals would again affirm the decision. And in the summer of 1970, Ali once more asked the court to review his conviction. Now, while Ali's criminal appeal was pending, he decided to sue the New York State Athletic Commission alleging that it had unconstitutionally suspended his boxing license. Now, Ali's complaint at first invoked the Due Process Clause in the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. Now, U.S. District Judge Marvin Frankel would dismiss that complaint, but in a rather uh, conspicuous, I guess you could say, footnote, the judge pointedly suggested that Ali might have a much stronger claim under the Equal Protection Clause if only he could allege facts to support his vague and general allegations that, on information and belief, defendants have on several occasions licensed professional boxers, notwithstanding evidence that such individuals would be far more likely to be detrimental to the interests of boxing than the plaintiff. And Frankel would grant Ali leave to replead his case uh, on the Equal Protection Clause claim. So with this, Ali's lawyer took the cue and amended their complaint accordingly. They said instead uh, that they alleged that the commission had 
on other occasions, licensed professional boxers who had been convicted of crimes, including moral turpitude. Discovery in the case then uncovered that the commission had in fact granted, renewed, or reinstated boxing licenses to applicants who had been convicted of one or more felonies, misdemeanors, or military offenses, including uh, or involving moral turpitude, on at least 244 occasions. Now, these included second-degree murder, burglary, armed robbery, extortion, grand larceny, rape, sodomy, aggravated assault and battery, embezzlement, arson, fraud, impairing the moral of minors, and desertion from the armed forces. And it was that showing there that really made all the difference. So on December 24th of 1969, uh, a jolt, uh, Judge Walter Mansfield, to whom the case had been reassigned, wrote as follows. If the commission in the present case had denied licenses to all applicants convicted of crimes or military offenses, plaintiff would have no valid basis for demanding that a license be issued to him, but the action of the commission in denying him a license because of his refusal to serve in the armed forces while granting licenses to hundreds of other applicants convicted of other crimes and military offenses involving moral turpitude appear on its face to be an intentional, arbitrary, and unreasonable discrimination against the plaintiff, not the even-handed administration of the law which the 14th Amendment would require. And, noting that the Commission's decision had cost Ali the ability to earn a living in his chosen trade in the prime of his career from the ages of 25 to 28, the judge assumed that he had only a limited number of years remaining in which he can meet the rigorous physical standards essential to engaging in such activity. Judge Manfield would then go on to conclude that it is clear that unless uh, preliminary relief is granted, he will suffer irreparable injury and the harm to Ali cannot be measured in damages. Now, the judge, therefore, would preliminarily uh, enjoin the commission from denying Ellie a license to fight. Now, two months before uh, his return bout, which would have been the Ali Frazier fight, the Supreme Court, uh, rather surprisingly actually, granted cert to hear uh, Ali's appeal of his criminal conviction. Uh, this was reportedly done at the urging of Justice William Brennan. Now, at the time, few of the other justices were at all sympathetic to Ali's claims. And in fact, Brennan's claim was that even though he was very sure the court would not get the five votes it would need in favor to overturn Ali's criminal conviction, that because Ali was such a high-profile figure, the court would do well to take the case purely to draft an opinion that would clearly and concisely explain the legal argument for upholding his conviction, which is something that all of the lower appeals courts had failed to do in their denials. 
and the court would hear oral arguments in the case on April 19th, uh, just six weeks after Frazier had beaten Ali. Uh, and if you're interested, go over to the show notes page. I have uh, links to both the actual recording of the oral arguments and the transcripts if you would like to read them. But Basically, in earlier cases, the court had held that a refusal of the government to classify the individual as a conscientious objector could be a defense to his failure to submit to induction, but only if there was no basis in fact for the government's decision. Now, the statutory test for conscientious objector status was whether the individual as we talked about last time, by reason of religious training and belief, is conscientiously opposed to participation of war in any form. And the critical question here in Ali's case turned on that final condition, that the religious objection be to war in any form. Now, in effect, what this meant was that for pacifist congregations such as Quakers, they were entitled to such an exemption, but uh, for people whose conscientious objection was opposed to the Vietnam War in particular, which was a very common view among Catholics at the time, uh, that they would conclude that such involvement was immoral according to their concept of a religious just war doctrine, and they would not be exempt. Now, uh, last time we talked about the case of Gillette v. United States, and this kind of goes back to that on March 8, 1971, which was actually the morning of the Ali Frazier fight, the court had heard that case and affirmed the constitutionality of this congressionally drawn distinction, rejecting a First Amendment challenge brought by an individual, Kai Gillette, who had a selective religious objection to fighting in the Vietnam War in particular. So, with Ali's case then, the court confronted the question, was there any basis in fact for the appeal board to conclude that Ali's religious objection to participation in the war was selective? So again, uh, was this an objection to the Vietnam War or a categorical exemption to all war? Now, at conference, after the oral arguments in April, five of the eight participating justices, namely Chief Justice Warren Berger and Justices Hugo Black, John Marshall Harlan, Byron White, and Harry Blackman, voted to affirm the conviction. And we have Justice William Douglas, William Brennan, and Potter Stewart, who voted to reverse. Now, while Thurgood Marshall was on the court at this time, he had recused himself because he had been the Solicitor General, in an earlier phase of Ali's case. Now, this tentative majority disposition was not quite as secure as it might sound, however. Now, according to Justice Blackman's notes, Justice Black told the conference that he thought the question was very close. And in fact, uh, Justice John Marshall Harlan had remarked that Ali had been badly advised legally and that his argument was confused. 
And it's actually uh, quite possible that Justice Blackman himself was on the fence. Uh, his law clerk, Robert Gooding, uh, had recommended reversal. And within his chambers, Blackman had expressed to his clerks that his vote would depend on the response to the oral argument. Now, the justices in this tentative majority apparently did accept the government's argument that there was at least some basis in fact for the appeals board to have found that Ali's objection was selective because he acknowledged that he would be willing to fight for Islam in a religious or holy war. And according to a brief filed by Solicitor General uh, Griswold, there was ample evidence tending to show that Ali would not object to fighting with real weapons in a defensive war on behalf of Muslims. It was, therefore, not unreasonable for the Selective Service System to conclude that his was not a general scruple against participation in war, but rather a refusal to fight in wars on the side of white persons. Such a belief is consonant with the creed of his Muslim sect, as expressed in the tracts that the petitioner placed in the record as the source of his belief. And indeed, Ali's own reply brief did concede that it, um, his own testimony and statements assert a clear and unambiguous opposition to participation in all wars, except theocratic wars in which he is commanded to fight by his God. The Chief Justice assigned Justice Harlan to write the majority opinion, and one of Justice Harlan's law clerks began drafting it. Now, another one of his clerks, Thomas Krattenmaker, who was himself busy at work on the majority opinion in another case uh, involving a draft protest, which was namely Cohen v. California, a case in which a man wore a fuck-the-draft jacket into a courthouse. But he was troubled by Ali's case, and he began to carefully review one of the canonical Nation of Islam texts that Ali had introduced as establishing the basis for his religious objection. Uh, this was Message to the Black Man in America, a book written by Elijah Muhammad, the leader of the Nation of Islam. Now, after reading Message to the Black Man and other Nation of Islam texts, Krattenmaker developed doubts about the nature of this so-called holy war in which Ali had conceded he would be willing to participate. Krattenmaker came to understand that the prospect of such a holy war was entirely abstract and hypothetical and contingent upon future events and a divine decree that were unlikely to ever actually occur. So, Ali's case thus appeared now to uh, be analogous to another 1955 case known as Sicarella v. United States. This was a case involving the Jehovah's Witnesses in which the government had introduced church texts depicting Jehovah's Witnesses as extolling the ancient wars of the Israelites and ready to engage in a theocratic war if Jehovah so commands them. Granting that the Jehovah's Witnesses will fight at Armageddon, the court wrote in Sicarella, we do not feel this is enough, 
as to theocratic war, the the petitioner's willingness to fight on the orders of Jehovah is tempered by the fact that, so far as we know, their history records no such command since biblical times, and their theology does not appear to contemplate one in the future. So Ali's willingness to fight in a war only if commanded to do so by God made his case analogous to Sicarella, and because of this, Krattenmaker would reason that Ali was, as a practical matter, religiously opposed to fighting in any war that might actually occur. Now, Krattenmaker would go on to convey uh, these doubts to uh, Justice Harlan's other clerk, the one who had actually been tasked with writing the opinion in the Ali case, and the two of them uh, would then invade with Justice Harlan. Now, Harlan was very uh, dubious at first, but agreed to read the pertinent excerpts of the message to the black man. And after doing so, Harlan concluded that Krattenmaker was right. With this, Harlan began to draft an opinion that would actually result in a reversal of Ali's conviction. Now, as far as we know, his fellow justices were apparently unaware of this development until Harlan sprung it on them uh, at the very end of their term, uh, just about four weeks or so before it was set to end. Uh, And a few days later, on June 10th, Harlan would go on to circulate a draft opinion with a contrite cover letter uh, explaining his work on the opinion that he was assigned to write had brought him serious misgivings, that he regret very much that my switch in vote necessarily comes at an inopportune time in the closing days of our term, and that with Brother Marshall out of the case, by which he's referring to Thurgood Marshall, who had recused himself, it will result in a 4-4 tie as the vote now stands. But seeing the case as I do, I cannot in good conscience vote otherwise. He closed by saying, The message teaches that Islam is a religion of peace. But what about the Islamic notion of jihad or holy war? Wouldn't Muslims within the nation of Islam be willing to fight in such a battle? Well, Justice Douglas, for one, thought that they would. Now, back in April 22nd of 1971, shortly after oral arguments, Douglas had circulated to the other justices a draft separate opinion with an exposition on jihad as he understood it. Now, he wrote uh, in a cover memo, My travels in Islam got me interested in the Quran, and as a result of this hobby, I send this memo. Now, Douglas eventually issued a version of a separate opinion as a concurrence in which he opined that the Quran defines jihad as an injunction to the believers to war against non-believers. He quoted from the sale edition of the Quran, which first appeared in England in 1934, and his quote was, Thus God propoundeth unto men their examples, When ye enter the unbelievers, strike off their heads until ye have made a great slaughter among them and bind them in bonds and either give them a free demission afterwards or exact a ransom until the war shall have laid down its arms. This shall ye do. 
Now, Justice Douglas then actually agreed uh, with the Berger-led majority that Ali's objection was selective, that Ali was indeed willing to fight in a jihad. Douglas, however, uh, alone among the other justices, believed that Congress's distinction between uh, comprehensive and selective religious objection was itself a violation of the Free Exercise Clause. Uh, and if you remember uh, in our last video when we talked about Gillette v. United States, that was the very same point that Guy Gillette was making, that this distinction between general and selective was a violation of his First Amendment Establishment Clause rights. So, therefore, sincere religious objectors uh, in the Vietnam War would be according to Justice Douglas, entitled to an exemption even if they did not object to war in any form. Therefore, he was prepared to vote for Ali, but for reasons that no other justice accepted. Now, there was one more hurdle for Harlan to deal with. Uh, the hearing officer had asked Ali whether he would fight in such a holy war if commanded to do so by Allah, speaking through Elijah Muhammad, and Ali had replied that he was sure Muhammad would issue no such command, but if he advised me to, I would. Now, according to Harlan, this concession did not disqualify Ali under the statutory war in any form standard. In the absence of anything to cast doubt on this testimony, Harlan would write, and in the view of the Im imminence of Armageddon in the Nation of Islam view, recalling Justice Harlan's understanding that Allah, not Muslims, would fight against whites in a hypothetical battle according to the Nation of Islam's teachings, Justice Harlan said, We think petitioner's willingness to fight in holy wars does not render him ineligible for conscientious objector status under the construction of the statute in Sicarella. Now, Justice Harlan's about face, which might have conferred a presumptive right uh, to exemption upon all members of the Nation of Islam who shared Ali's beliefs, uh, reportedly really outraged Chief Justice Berger who complained to one of his law clerks that Harlan had become, quote, an apologist for the black Muslims, unquote. Now, Harlan would acknowledge that his switched vote meant that the court was divided four to four. This meant if none of the other justices in the original majority joined his opinion, the court would then have affirmed Ali's conviction without an opinion, in which case Ali would have begun to serve his time in federal prison, uh, and this was, of course, just after he had lost his comeback match to Joe Frazier, and without any assurance that the majority of the nine justices thought his conviction was lawful. Nor would the court explain itself in issuing this shocking injunction, which, if you remember, was the entire reason Justice Brennan argued that they should hear the case. This was not an ideal resolution, to say the very least. Justice Stewart was not sure 
that Harlan's draft would attract another vote, and he was not pleased about the prospect of a 4-4 affirmance. So within hours of Harlan's circulation of his own opinion on June 10th, uh, Stewart had wrote to his, his fellow justices that he agreed with Harlan's memo and would gladly join it should it become the opinion of the court. He added, however, that there was also a narrower ground for reversal, one that Justice Brennan had been urging based upon a different aspect of the Sicarella decision. Stewart promised to try my hand at writing a few words on that subject over the forthcoming weekend. Now the following week, Stewart circulated his own draft opinion which would reverse Ali's conviction without the need to resolve the merits of Justice Harlan's conclusion that Ali had a sincere religious objection to war in any form. So Harlan's own draft had included an argument similar to Stewart and Brennan, but Stewart's draft navigated away to avoid the merits question altogether. Stewart's draft then focused on the fact that in the administrative proceeding back in 1966 and 1967, the Department of Justice had recommended that the appeal board deny Ali's application not only because he was alleging a willingness to fight in a hypothetical holy war, but also because, according to the Department of Justice, Ali's objection was more political and racial than religious. And this was even under the court's very broad definition of what counts as religious. Now, the Department of Justice also intimated to the appeal board that Ali's objection might be a function of convenience rather than sincerity because he did not assert his conscientious objector claim until military service became imminent. In the Supreme Court, however, the Solicitor General had disclaimed both of those two bases for sustaining the, con the conviction. So, essentially, he uh, no longer agreed with the idea that the objection was insincere or that it was based on a political or racial motive as opposed to a religious one. And the court itself, in its eventual published opinion held that the department was simply wrong as a matter of law in advising that the petitioner's beliefs were not religiously based and were not sincerely held. Now, because the appeal board denied Ali's application without explanation, there was no way to tell whether it had relied on one or both of those inadequate grounds uh, rather than on the theory arguably supported by a basis in fact that Ali was willing to fight in a holy war. This uncertainty about the board's rationale was problematic to Stewart, and he wrote, because the court had already held in the 1955 Sicarella case that when the Department of Justice makes an error of law to which the appeal board might naturally look for guidance on such questions, that error must vitiate the entire proceeding or at least where it is not clear that the board relied on some legitimate ground. Now, Justice Stewart's proposed draft broke the deadlock. And on Monday, June 28, 1971, 
the court would issue its decision in Clay v. United States, holding in a pure curium opinion drafted by Stewart that, here, where it is impossible to determine on exactly which grounds the appeal board decided, the integrity of the selective service system demands, at least, that the government not recommend illegal grounds. And here the judgment of reversal was unanimous, though Justice Harlan and Douglas concurred in their own opinions. But by issuing a decision that was specific to the facts of Ali's administrative proceeding, the court had thereby avoided the need to decide whether the theoretical prospect of participating in a holy war against Islam meant that the, na the members of the Nation of Islam were or were not conscientiously opposed to participation in war in any form. Two years later, on June 30th of 1973, the United States formally ended the draft and began to rely upon an all-volunteer army. And on October 30th of 1974, Ali would stun George Foreman with an eighth-round knockout in Zaire. This was, of course, the famous rumble in the jungle, thereby winning back his heavyweight title that seven and a half years earlier had been unlawfully taken away from him. Now, before we go, I, I have links to a bunch of good books and articles and movies about this topic uh, that were helpful to me in my research, as well as some uh, resources that go into interesting facets of this case. I simply don't have time uh, to get into and address myself. But there is one I really, really highly recommend you guys go check out. This is a movie called Muhammad Ali's Greatest Fight. Now, this is about Ali's Supreme Court case, but rather uniquely, it tells the story from the perspective of the justices and the clerks based on their own first-hand accounts and the court's official records. Now, generally, uh, dramatizations of real-life events are shit as far as accuracy goes. This movie is uh, an admirably accurate dramatization, uh, and you really get a great impression of how the court functions behind closed doors. So this is really everything from the discretionary process of reviewing cert petitions uh, to the process of final uh, private conferences uh, and how the courts turn a simple judgment into a final majority opinion uh, that is the end result of a marriage-based case. And it gives you a good idea of how uh, the court's politicking goes, by which I mean uh, the compromises and concessions that the justices make to get those crucial five votes you need for any case. So, until next time, this has been me, Bob, for Legalese, signing off. Uh, if you like the show, uh, do all those normal things. Uh, hit the like button. If you dislike the video, hit the dislike button. Uh, subscribe to the channel. Leave a comment if you want, as always, of course. Uh, but anyways, uh, I'm out of here. I'll be back soon. And until next time, Cartago de Lenda Est.